Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about the suspension of disbelief. Um, and, uh, you know, it actually it reminds me of a conversation that I had with Jilly about a week, about a weekish ago, when we were actually, you know, figuring out topics and stuff and throwing things out. And we got on, to- we got on um, this thing where we were writing down a list of all of our stories and, you know, talking about the major trope we use in it, the, th- the thematic theme, which we talked about last night, um, of each of the stories. And we got to the birth of the Serpent King, and I said that it was um, an alternate universe. And she said that she thought it was canon divergent, mostly. But the whole thing with the, um, with the, noble, with the nobility part makes it an AU which we both agreed on. But the reason I said it was canon divergent is because Lucius Malfoy in canon isn't capable of making the sacrifice that he made in Birth of the Serpent King. Am I gone? Okay, so Rogue, you, well, tell, tell her to reboot. <laughs> okay, so, and um, we had this really in-depth discussion about it. Uh, I'm not sure if we ever actually got on the same page or not. <laughs> um, I think ultimately we agreed to disagree about a couple of, not so much about Birth of the Serpent King, because we ultimately agreed Birth of the Serpent King was AU, because more more because of your world building. Um, yeah. But um, I still maintain that the that the that the life deck created a canon divergence point. That's you know to me that was canon divergent. That this that when Lily Potter saved Narcissa and Draco, yeah, that it, that, that was yeah. the canon divergence point. But you, I, I think we didn't ultimately agree on that point, so we just saw it differently. Well, I do see it um, as a canon divergence, but it can't be a true canon divergence because of the the, the nobility world building, which doesn't take place in the original Harry Potter. Um, right, so that that's what makes it an AU, though. To and, and that was the that was our sticking point. for at first was that yes, the, the nobility aspects make it an AU, but that the that um, I I felt like that the can that it was canon divergent except for that. And at first we didn't agree on that point. Yeah, yeah, we got around to it though. Um, but actually, most of my Harry Potter work is AU because of my deep attachment to the Lord Potter thing, which is not canon. So um, I think I only have like one that I would consider canon divergence and not an AU. um, And that would be the magical promise. Because all of my Sentinel Guide ones are obviously alternate universes. Um, Yeah. I mean the 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 nobility thing. Um, I mean the nobility thing. It it depends upon I think what you do with it because there's there's a hint of something that you could maybe call canon with the whole ancient noble house thing, but yeah, it's, it's it's so undeveloped that if you do any significant world building around that nobility aspect that impacts canon, you've gone AU. So it's like, as long as your world building around the nobility stuff doesn't impact canon events, you can kind of call it, I think you can call it canon divergent. But I think that in, in your world, your world building definitely impacted canon events. So, But it got back to suspension of disbelief. And for me, I had to change the backstory between um, 
the Potters and the Malfoys, and I had to put this life debt in um, because I really don't believe that the canon version of Lucius Malfoy is capable of making the sacrifice that he made in Birth of the Serpent King. Um, I think that Narcissa Malfoy actually is capable of it because she did do a version of it in canon when she laid hands on a living Harry Potter and then turned to she had to know in that moment that Voldemort was not going to win. That this kid had taken two killing curses and was not dead, which meant they were fighting fate at that point, right? In in her mind, because she didn't. I mean, there, there, there's no evidence that she knew about the Horcruxes, um, and she knew in that moment. I think that Voldemort wasn't going to win. But she still turned to him and said you know, that he was dead. She lied to the Dark Lord's face. And it was about saving Draco. It was about saving her son. Mm -hmm. And she she could have. He could have discovered her lie at any moment and killed her. So it was not a yeah. move that was without risk. So I think Narcissa, even in canon, is capable of making the sacrifice that... Um, um, Lucius did in Birth of the Serpent King. But I had to put that life debt in there... Um, for me to believe that he was capable of it, that he would turn on Voldemort in the cemetery. Because the only other person that I could have put in the cemetery when I was writing that, which I pantsed, um, that I thought might be able, to, that I can probably see make that turn, um, was Snape. Which really didn't serve my pairing. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... I made it, uh, but in, in canon, I don't think Severus Snape came to the cemetery. Oh, did he? But I think if he had heeded that call, if he had come when, when Voldemort called, that the events of the cemetery would have happened much differently. I agree. Yeah, he was at the school. Um, I was like, I didn't think in either version that he went to the cemetery, but... Like Kira often says, I've slept since then. Um, yeah. So with it, I want to read something. I, you know, I'm just was generally I I don't I was look, I look stuff up sometimes for the podcast to make sure that I've got some resources in case we need it. Um, and as much as TV tropes annoys me because they really they're very negative when they talk about fan fiction tropes and they put things in the fan fiction trope list that are actually author behaviors. And, and it's just, there's a whole world of judgment going on there, but they do have, I thought one of the better write-ups about suspension of disbelief. I'm just going to read it. Um, <laughs> in the right tab, because of course I've got too many open. Any creative endeavor, certainly any written creative endeavor, is only successful to the extent that the audience offers the willing suspension of disbelief as they read, listen, or watch. It's part of an unspoken contract. The writer provides the reader, viewer, player with a good story, and in return, the reader accepts the reality of the story as presented and accept that characters in the fictional universe act on their own accord. An author's work, in other words, does not have to be realistic, only believable, and internally consistent. Even that last requirement can be waived to some extent. When the author pushes an audience beyond what they're willing to accept, the work fails in the eyes of this particular audience. Um, I'm going to skip the bit about science fiction. 
So, well, no, I won't. As far as science fiction is concerned, viewers are usually willing to go along with creative explanations, which is why people don't criticize your wormhole travel system or how a shrinking potion doesn't violate the laws of matter conservation. But even in the more fantastical genre, suspension of disbelief can be broken when a work work breaks its own established laws or asks the audience to put up with too many things that come off as contrived. A common way of putting this is you can ask an audience to believe the impossible but not the improbable. For example, people will accept that the Grand Mage can teleport across the world or that the spaceship has technology that makes it completely invisible without rendering its own sensors blind, but they won't accept that the ferocious carnivore just happened to have a heart attack and die right before it attacked the main character. <laughs> and that is possibly one of the best write-ups about suspension of disbelief that I have ever read. So I went ahead and dealt with TV tropes for you guys. <laughs> and we thank you. What I would say about the suspension of disbelief is that a reader comes into your story wanting to believe. They want to believe the story you're going to tell them. and But that belief is delicate. Very. For some readers. And it also depends on the genre. Sometimes some genres you've got a little bit more wiggle room than others. People come into sci-fi with a lot more suspension of disbelief on board than they may a murder mystery. You know? Um, like, I would say I heard at least four or five different people on the row that I was in in the movie theater during Endgame when they were explaining how time travel was going to work. I definitely heard four or five different voices say bullshit. <laughs> well, several of us, because we were in the theaters, we all, we all just kind of like leaned forward and looked at each other like, what? I mean, there was this moment of like, and then the people down the row were doing the same thing, like looking at each other going, does that make any sense? No, of course it doesn't. What the fuck? I, I elbowed my husband and he went, I know. <laughs> <laughs> we we had a whole conversation with an elbow and I know. <laughs> I was like, what? No. That's not how that's going to work. That's bullshit. <laughs> uh-uh. So we're willing to accept the impossibility of time travel, but not the improbability of that method of it. So the impossible versus right. the improbable. It doesn't make any sense. Rears its head again. I keep dropping down into red and yellow. Oh, if this keeps going on, we may have to bounce the server. Um, but anyway, um, the let's not even discuss the shit with Banner. I can't. I can't just get upset. Um, it broke me. The destruction of his humanity was the murder of Hulk. I. <laughs> They murdered to me. They murdered a kid. Um, yes, a destructive kid, potentially destructive, but still. Um, so suspension of disbelief. Your story hinges on it. Everybody's story hinges on it. It is not a just about. Did you make your? It's not about is your science fiction world believable enough? Because it isn't. It isn't about. Um, did you explain your races in Middle Earth well enough? It, it's not about that. Um, every story hinges on suspension of disbelief. Uh, do your characters act to, in, interact together in ways that people find plausible? Um, do the police officers do the things that, even if people don't know the police procedure, 
you know, do the police officers come off to maybe anybody but a cop as being reasonable? Um, do they throw their gun away when they're confronted with a suspect? Oh, you know, God. I don't want to bash that fic. I really don't. But that really bothers me. That whole scene bothers me. And the scene after it where he acts like Vance is an idiot for questioning him on it. Yeah. It's pure meta. I mean, it's like she's definitely talking to her readers at that point. She's saying, fuck you to the readers, which actually I kind of appreciate. But also what? <laughs> well, she was. I think she was trying to lampshade it. But the thing about lampshading is you're supposed to do it before the reader can have their their disbelief suicide lampshading has to be done first so or at least Look, really I close totally to the bought that whole star trek slingshotting around the sun thing i mean okay that's star trek science i believe it i'm on board save the whales <laughs> we don't we don't get the names out of fix that drive us crazy uh it'd be yeah, bad we juju. won't name it it's an in, but yeah we won't name it or it's an NCIS fix. I already said that it was Vance in, in it, but yeah. Um. But it, it, you know, and the thing is, it could be a great story, but I, I'll never know because early on, I get past it. early on, my disbelief took a swan dive off a bridge and it died. I mean, you know, and the problem when your disbelief takes a, takes a suicide run is that it, it's unrecoverable. It's not like, do we need to bounce a server? Yeah. I just dropped into the red. Okay, We're so let's make Craig go away first. I'll do. Let's go make Craig. So we don't have another little issue with Craig. Go away, Craig. Yeah, for those of you who are interested in using Craig to record your audio on um, on Discord, the person who starts Craig is the one who gets the link to the download. So just FYI. Yeah. Um, yes. Suspension of disbelief is delicate. And when it, when it, there are times in a story where your lamp shading or whatever is a little bit, maybe a little too late and the reader's kind of tilting their head and wondering, are they going to get there? Are they going to explain this? The problem is, is like, even if you eventually get the reader back, which I've read stories like that where I was like hesitant, but the reader, they got me by the end. You actually don't want your reader that aware and questioning your story. Like, uh, Oh, I don't know about this. That is, that means they're out of it. And they're out of the story for as long as it takes for you to convince them that you're on the right track. They're just kind of going along to see if you can recover it, but they're not actually in the story anymore. So that is kind of this disbelief is hanging. Like it, it's, it, may, it hasn't like completely crashed yet, but it's kind of dangling off the bridge. But sometimes there's a hard stop on suspension of disbelief and people go, oh, I can't go any further. And, and whether it's character action or um, a plot point that, you've inserted that doesn't fit the flow. I mean, sometimes you can break the suspension of disbelief by making your character do something completely out of character. Mm -hmm. Or, and sometimes it's not, you, you put them in a situation, like one of the things that I have a problem with in Harry Potter fic is that whole thing about them changing his circumstances before he gets to Hogwarts, where he grows up with a good family, he gets raised by Sirius or whatever, and then the events take place the same exact way. And you're like, no, actually, that's not how that would work. And how the hell 
was that dog in the school for the whole year and not a single parent complained. Now, the fan explanation is, is that Dumbledore was manipulating all those kids and didn't let them tell their parents that he, that he was keeping a hellhound. But you can't think for a second that those four Gryffindor were the only ones who knew about Fluffy. No. That just four first years found out about Fluffy? I don't fucking think so. That was a non-secret by Christmas. If it wasn't a non-secret by the next morning, I'd have been shocked. Right? So, that's a major suspension of disbelief point that we... I think I think there's a lot of suspension of disbelief points where it's teetering in Harry Potter. And that's one of the reasons why there's so much fix-it in Harry Potter. Um, but I also think you keep in mind that Harry Potter was not written for an adult audience. And so the suspension of disbelief for a kid is much more hardy than the suspension for disbelief for an adult reader. Yes. And the more trained you are in something, the harder you're going to have, a more more difficult time you're going to have with that. If you are, for instance, somebody who is on a, is a crime scene technician, I doubt you watch CSI unless it's to get drunk and laugh at it. Right. Okay. Now, my my Padawan was um is very was a very sensitive kid. Now he's a somewhat sensitive adult. It's so bizarre. Um, and uh, he the, the first time he read Harry Potter, he came to me and he was really serious and his eyes were like he was just he looked really upset and he asked me he goes Do they not have child protective services in Britain? And I'm like, yeah, they have child protective services in the UK. Why do you ask? And he said, well, why did Harry Potter grow up in a cupboard? Are there other kids growing up in cupboards in the UK? Is that okay? Is that what they do there? Is this normal for the UK? Can we do something about it? I mean, he was really upset. I said, it's not normal. It probably isn't happening unless their house is really full of people and if they do have to use a boot cupboard for a room I'm sure it's much nicer than what Harry Potter had to use and and then I had to explain to him why the author did what she did and um, that it, cre- it was to create a situation so that Harry would be really you know really happy to go off to the magical world because it was you know he was like well, this is just bullshit. And then he walked away. He was eight. <laughs> well, his suspension of disbelief just had a real big issue with that. Very smart kid. I'm going to brag for a second. My Padawan got a 32 on his ACT. Wow. Yeah, a 32 out of 36. He actually thinks he would have done better, but he had a head cold when when he took it. He said he had a hard time concentrating. And he was actually planning on retaking it until he came back to 32. And he said, well, you know, that's okay. (laughs) That's not bad. It's like, no, no, baby, that's not bad. (laughs) I guess I I can live with it. (laughs) Now, when he took the pre-ACT, he actually got a 36. So, yeah, he was a little disappointed. He took a pre, you know, version of it, so. Yeah. 
Yeah, but 32 is an auto scholarship. Yeah, he got he's gotten a lot of offers. He's getting a full ride from several from several universities have been offered to him. So yeah, he's good. But That's um amazing. Yes. yeah. Very smart kid. Um unfortunately for him, I think in a lot of respects that that kind of ruined his childhood. Cuz when you're smart like that, um you, you don't see the world the same way and you see things like the abuse. I mean, there was no wonder for him when when he read Harry Potter. He didn't find it wondrous and amazing. He found it horrifying. Because his worldview was so much different than the regular eight-year-old who was reading Harry Potter. Then, of course, he ruined it for all of his friends. <laughs> <laughs> they were all like, this is great. I want to live in a cupboard. No, you don't. That's abuse. Harry Potter was abused. <laughs> What's the matter with you? But I remember being that young and being very conscious of how much money was being spent in the house. And I wouldn't ask for things that I wanted because I figured it would be too expensive. I was very concerned about um, not being a burden, not being a financial burden when I was that age. And my mother never said anything like that to me. But I just I just developed this this thing, this this headspace where I had to, you know, to be the cause of the least amount of financial burden <laughs> possible in the house. I, mean, I don't know where that came from. It's just, but I also worried about um, recycling and um, just all kinds of weird things when I was a little kid. I was very concerned about the planet and um, and whales and dolphins and Free Willy almost killed me. I mean, you know, just stuff like that. I, I had a really difficult time. So um, in a lot of respects, um, me and my Padawan, um, I understand him a lot better than most of the other adults in the, in the family, because we share a similar headspace that way. But yeah, he didn't get that wondrous, awesome experience. Most kids got reading Harry Potter for the first time. Well, my ex first exposure to Harry Potter was reading it to my sister who was eight, eight-ish at the time. And I was like, um seems well well i guess she was seven she first started books but i was like this seems a little much for her a little dark it was because the first book i read to her was prisoner of azkaban and i was like this is wow really she's eight i don't know about this um i told you guys the story about my sister and um, maze runner right no, no, it was Hunger Games. It was Hunger Games. My nephew, when he was 11 or 12, whenever Hunger Games came out, he wanted the first Hunger Games book. And so I bought it for him. My sister pitched a fit because I bought him Hunger Games where kids were killing each other. This is the same woman who had bought him all seven Harry Potter books, by the way. Um, and I was like, so you have a problem with Hunger Games? And she's like, of course, it's terrible. It's violent. I said, would you let him read a book about um, a book series about a young boy who grows up in an abusive home and then he's taken into a fantastical world where he's brainwashed and dragged down a path to suicide. And he eventually does commit suicide because he's been trained to believe that only he can save the world that he's been invited into. Well, no, I wouldn't. I said, then you better go take Harry Potter off the shelf. That's exactly what that is. She looked absolutely appalled. <laughs> 
Well, it is. She actually never read Harry Potter. Oh, <laughs> yeah. See, her, it it is. It, it yeah. I, I, it kids definitely do find that fantastical stuff. Um, but there are those sensitive kids out there that struggle with those kinds of things. I'd say suspension of disbelief is a little bit more of a challenge when you have a very literal kid, um, because you know. It's not so much that they believe things that are impossible, but if something's if if you're just it's not the impossible things that trip them up; it's the improbable ones, right? So it's like kids living in boxcars, old train boxcars, because they have nowhere else to go. Well, that seems like a good idea. <laughs> it worked for them. Same Why wouldn't example. it work for me? <laughs> right. I remember my mom didn't let me watch um, uh, Willy Wonka because she said it was horrible. I think I didn't watch Willy Wonka until I was 19 or 20. Wow. I mean, I read the book when I was a kid and I struggled with it. Um, not even because of Willy Wonka and the stuff that happened in the factory and those awful children. I really struggled with early on with those, uh, all these people living in such deprivation that, uh, the level of starvation and stuff that they were struggling with just, and that nobody cared about really upset me. I was like, wow. And, and like all of those, those four old people having to share a bed. I, I was like, does this seem right to anybody? Well, that's true. I mean, well, I don't know that adults seem Ill Ill illogical to kids. I think that sometimes adults don't bother to explain their logic to kids because I said so isn't actually any kind of logic but that's <laughs> that's the line that happens right that's what kids get I'm gonna have to go away for a little bit I have a nosebleed and I can't get it to stop so oh, I'll dear. be right back okay so while well, she's on nose triage um so suspension of disbelief uh when you when you're doing, when you're writing, um, like I said, like I said earlier, it doesn't matter if you th if you lose the audience, even if you only lose them for a little bit. Like they've got a, you know, that moment where their head tilting, going, I don't know. Um, now there there are stories, there are movies where you're just not quite sure you're bought in on the premise until the very end, and then you go, yeah, yeah, and then you rewatch it, and you're all in for the whole thing, and I would say that's the rare exception where that's a good thing. Because usually what happens is if you're not bought in on the premise until the very end, you're not going to reread it. You're probably not going to recommend it. You're going to go, okay, the the author tied it up, but it, it wasn't so, I mean, you spend most of the story out of it. You spend most of your story head tilted and you're not in that immersive experience because that's the goal is that the reader is in it. They are experiencing the story. They're experiencing the character's journey. They are totally bought in on what's happening. And that's what your goal is with suspension of disbelief, which means you need to be handling your hand waves and your lamp shading and all of that stuff definitely enough that they're, that it's addressed before they have a problem so that they're not yanked out of the story. So we, there's definitely the hard stop. There's the, you know, your, your disbelief 
just jumped off the bridge and it is Humpty Dumpty down there on the ground. Okay. There's no coming back from that place. But then there's the little stops. You know, there's all those little moments where people go, Oh, would he really have done that? Would that have really gone that way considering how canon changed? Would it have really, this would really have been the, was that a reasonable repercussion for, you know, sexually assaulting somebody? You know, you'd, and you don't want your reader to be having those moments, especially a lot. And we've all read fanfic where we are just spending the whole story going, eh, eh, really, eh, really. Is this label crack or not? What? <laughs> okay, sorry guys. I mean, it's very weird. I've been getting nosebleeds just for no, you know, not that I can't. Well, unless I've been hit, I can't, you know, like hit with something or bumped into something. It's the only time I've ever had a nosebleed that actually made sense to me that, that I had a cause, like a physical cause. Well, but isn't, aren't nosebleeds a side effect, potential side effect of that rose scented crap you should have put up your nose? I honestly don't know. I shall look later. Flonase? Uh huh. I will look. Um, yeah, I'm cool. It just, there's nothing worse than having that drainage of blood in the back of your throat when you have a yeah. nosebleed. Ugh, oh, gaggy. So and, and yes, right. occasional nosebleeds are a side effect of of Flonase. Um during um during Endgame, I cried for the last 15 minutes of that movie. I mean, just tears just streamed down my face. I was so disappointed where it was gonna go and how it was gonna happen. And I was just I can't, I can't. This is so terrible. I mean, I had been disappointed since I set eyes on Bruce. Um or Hulk Banner, as they like to call him. And I was just like, I I was disappointed from that moment on. And then it just kind of built on me. Anyway, about 20 minutes before the movie ended, I got a nosebleed and I, it was excessive. I ran out of napkins and had to use <laughs> what every woman keeps in her pocket or her, her, her purse. <laughs> Worse. Who's, who's menstruating? Yeah. Everyone's got yeah, it. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, dark. The Russo, no, actually, it was a pad. Thank God. A tampon would have been useless. Um, but, uh, no, you just shove it up your nose, but unless you're bleeding, you know, bilaterally. Oh, I was bleeding from both nostrils. Well, then you would definitely, you, you, and my husband freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the Russos gave me a rage nosebleed in the middle of Marvel um, of of Endgame. Yeah, but it was it was terrible. Well, when you gave me the when you told me about because you told me the day before I went about um, Hulk. Um, well, I know he's your unicorn, and so I asked her. I said, you know, if if something awful happened to a character that you really love, would you want me to tell you in advance of you watching it? And she said, Oh God, what did I do to Bruce? <laughs> Yeah, that was exactly what I said. What happened to Bruce? Because I already, she knew I already knew about about Tony because um, you've been spoiled on Facebook. No, from Ao3, people putting it in their summaries. Tony Stark will never die in my fic. I'm like, oh fuck you. Um. So yeah, so uh, so the only thing I so I didn't know be anything beyond that. So when she said that, I was like, the only person left is that. I would care about his bruise. I was like, and so of course I immediately wanted to know. And she told me, and that's when I got my crying done. As, as soon as she told me, I just sat there and started to cry. I was like, they murdered Hulk. It's a nightmare. Yeah. They destroyed Bruce's humanity and they murdered Hulk. 
Yes, it's, it's my hack and Hulk is basically a child. Um, I... There's nothing of Hulk left but a body. Yep. And that's never more clear than when the Ancient One knocks Bruce out of the Hulk. And he just crumples like a doll on her roof. And it's not Hulk standing there. It's Bruce. And it's just like... I can't. It's just ugly. So... Yeah, when Groot dusted, I was furious. I was like, what? No, and fuck you. Obviously, and also, worse, did you know that Groot's lines actually have an English translation in um, the scripts so that the other characters know what Groot is saying? I did not know that. I know that uh, Vin Diesel said when he showed up to do the filming, he thought he was going to say, I am Groot a few times, and he had this stack of script telling him how to give every single I am Groot. Right. Um, Groot's last words, he called Rocket Dad. Oh, man. I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm sitting here getting all misty. We don't we don't want me actually crying ever because I get I ugly cry and I get really congested and it'll be a hot mess over here. I get Sorry, hoarse Margaret. and congested. But yeah, Groot's last words were dad. He called him dad. That's why Rocket looks so devastated. Beyond the fact that Groot just dusted in front of him, is that Groot called him dad. <sighs> I love you too, Queenie. Smooches. Why should I suffer alone with that knowledge? <sighs> I can't believe you guys hadn't read that anyway. It was all over the place. I'm terrible Hearing about reading any spoiler thing. I have to typically go looking for pop culture stuff, and I usually don't. The only other time it creeps in is when I'm um, when I go to Google and they have one of those stupid little cards that says, "We think you might be interested in this," and I go, "Oh shit, I am interested in it." Fucking clickbait. But um that actually it never it's it's never more clear than it is in that moment that the Groot that they put that they got out of the pot wasn't a um reincarnation of the Groot that sacrificed himself for the rest of the team. That he was that he was basically a new he was a new Groot. That, that maybe Groot wasn't the old Groot. Now I knew that. From from like comic book canon, I suspected that, but it because the old Groot would have never called Rocket Dad. They were friends; they weren't. But Rocket raised the new Groot from from a from a stick. <laughs> yeah, from his he was a stick when he was stickling. His little dancing stick, yeah. I'm going to tell my sister later. She's going to cry. She's going to send you hate mail. Oh, you know, I thought, who didn't? I mean, I was like, I'm, su I'm surprised you guys didn't already know that because it was a big thing, you know. <sighs> it's even more pitiful because Groot reaches out for him because I guess he realizes what's happening. It's almost an exact mirror of um, the emotional content you see between... Um, 
Tony and um, Peter when when Peter does. Oh. Uh, <sighs> Which is terrible. Uh, it is. So, uh, since we're talking about Marvel, um, should we run through suspension of disbelief issues in the movies and what potentially people could have they could have done about it? Yeah. Um. Well, let's start with the let's start. Well, what the? Uh, I think filming order. The first was Iron Man, right? Well, actually, if you want to get real technical about it, the first was Howard the Duck. No, no. <laughs> no. Okay. The movie that almost ruined Marvel. <laughs> How did um, was freaking hilarious, but, you know. The suspension of disbelief lives and ends at Howard the Duck. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, they skipped the Hulk movie, so I think yeah, I think the 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 Eric Bana Hulk movie. So it starts with um. Well, that Iron one's Man. a that one's a different different uh different uh a production company, right? That's yeah. why they read. That's why they redid it with Ed Norton. Well, we're only talking about the cinematic universe, folks. Don't get weird and start bringing in comics and TV shows. I'll be double burdening over here, and I don't, I don't have handy access to the double bird emojis. So Carol have to do it, and I'm willing. Um, the Shield show didn't come before Iron Man. Agents of Shield did not come out until, um, Agents of Shield did not come out until after the Avengers movie because fans could not deal with Coulson being dead. That was. Okay, so let's just start with, with Iron Man. Um, I didn't have a ton of suspension of disbelief issues with Iron Man, and that could be one of the reasons why it stands out to me as one of the better MCU movies. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I guess the only thing that really pops for me is that I never, I didn't get the impression that Obadiah Stane was all that technologically savvy mm -hmm. until suddenly he could basically build his own Iron Man suit. Well, I think he got other. I, my impression was he got other people to do it. <clears throat> my, I think my only ex, my suspension and that he was fit issue. enough to use it. At yeah. His age. My suspension of disbelief issue, I think, with the Marvel franchise was t t not the franchise, but t with Iron Man was, and I could have missed it. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying it's not pot, or I could have forgotten it. But it was that I didn't. I didn't feel like it was ever really explored well. Why Obadiah suddenly needed to get rid of Tony? I mean, Tony was the golden goose, and Tony was not doing anything that was going to take him off the track of building weapons. So why kill him? Maybe he felt like he had enough. Maybe. You're right, Ellie. I I kind of forgot that that he had a team building the suit for him. Stain that had a team building that um, markup of the, the original suit. Yeah, but it just. It, but the thing is, yeah, he it could be that he got too greedy. But the thing is, is that when the person who is responsible for all the technological innovation dies, there's no more technological innovation. 
Um, I don't know. So that was, it, it wasn't a huge deal. We, we, it didn't challenge, I'll, I'll put it this way. It didn't challenge my sense of suspension of disbelief until the movie was over. He didn't chalk it up as vanity, I guess, that he didn't, that he had spent his whole life basically in the shadow of one Stark after another. And he was done with that. And he wanted to do something different with the company. And he wanted to, to do what he wanted to do and didn't want to have to answer to Tony. Um, who he viewed as an immature child. Um, but none of that was ever explained. So we're left to infer. So from a character perspective, I do think it sets up an, um, an issue of what was his motivation. So that could be, a, a, like I, we went and saw a movie today where by the end, uh, one character's motivation was, it was, it was making me head tilt the main character's motivation actually was causing me to head tilt through the whole movie. And by the end, there was no explanation. Now in Iron Man, I didn't head tilt about Obadiah's um, motivations until the movie was over. And I went, was that ever really explained well? And the answer was no, but it didn't affect my suspension of disbelief during the movie. So it wasn't, it so wasn't yeah, that egregious. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The question is, is why did he kill the golden goose? All right. Because Maybe he got so deep in with his black market deals that he feared that Tony would figure it out or Tony would find out and that um, he needed to get rid of him. And that's probably more realistic is that it was that he was likely to be discovered and that there was a risk of discovery. But the thing is, that they never supply that information. So it's it's left hanging out there as a but why kind of thing. Um, I do think that him a risk of discovery is the only reason that makes sense to me that he would have killed Tony because Tony was too valuable. And if he, and if, if it's greed, if it's about greed, he's not going to kill Tony. No, he's going to work Tony to death. Yeah. He's going to keep manipulating Tony. Um, no, it became a ransom when they realized who they had. It was not ever supposed to be a ransom. They were supposed to kill him. I think Stane expected the Ten Rings to kill him, and that, um, they decided they were, to ransom him. And uh, yeah, that's that's what they were contracted to do. Is no, they were, were contracted to kill Tony, and they turned it around on Stane when they realized who they'd been contracted to kill because they didn't know. That was made really clear. So yeah, I mean, I find. Pepper's motivations in the in the in the books in, in the movies that come after Iron Man more circumspect than um, anybody else's. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But in the in terms of the actual anything going on, there were some times when I, I struggled a little bit with Rhodey, you know. But it was mostly because I felt like that Terrence Howard was just an odd fit in the role. So I struggled with him a little bit in that first Iron Man movie, but I never struggled um, after that first movie. So No, I didn't I, like Terrence Howard's portrayal of of um of Rhodey. It felt um it didn't feel like they were actually friends. No, I think that, that um Howard's animosity for RDJ kind of bled into the character. Yeah, and, and he he said that that they were really good friends for that whole movie. And then it was only after the movie that they had problems, but it didn't feel like that. Oh, Terrence Howard hates Robert Downey Jr. 
Yeah. Well, he 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 says that uh, he claims that um, he he claims now, according to him, from interviews I read, that it he brought Robert Downey Jr. into the project, and that Robert Downey Jr. got him then axed from the rest of the franchise. But that seems a little squiffy to me. But what do I know? Uh, you know, for me, when Marvel sat down at the table and said, "Okay." We need to cast Iron Man. If any single person at that table was thinking anything anything but Robert Downey Jr., they're a fucking moron. You never know. I mean, even Stan Lee said that Robert Downey Jr. was born to be Iron Man. That he was Iron Man. Yeah. But that was, his, obviously, that's what his claim was that... Uh, Although he I had brought, heard that Tom Cruise was a, at one point... Um, he was one of the first people they considered. Because of his his because of his big box office draw at that time, so so, but I mean that like I said that was that was all that I read in an interview with um, Terrence Howard, and that according to him, Robert Downey Jr. ghosted him after Iron Man. He could never get the guy to take his calls again. Um, but like I said, I don't put any kind of I don't give a, put a lot of credit a lot of credit credibility to those kinds of. Um, sour grapes kind of interviews. Um, but what I do know is that I didn't think their chemistry as friends was at all good in the movie. No. So that so he was earlier about, about them killing RD, um, RDJ's character to get him out of um, movie franchises. I didn't quite get the reference. Uh, since I the think, only one I know he's been killed out of is the no, MCU. They said, they said something if, if, if they didn't want to have to extend his contract for a bunch more movies, they had to kill him, which he wanted out of it. So that was his decision. Oh, okay, he I see could... what you mean. I see. I've, I misread it. <clears throat> but the thing about him is that he could have continued on. Um... Yeah. He, That's what he, he wanted to get out of it before it got embarrassing. Yeah, but he could have continued on as the leader of the Avengers, but not actually been in the field and passed on the mantle of Iron Man to somebody else. Right. And I think fans would have been happier with that than with him dying. But um, but whatever. That actually, him dying wasn't, I had no, I, I didn't have any suspension of disbelief points with him making the ultimate sacrifice. So, But anyway, so next movie. So basically Iron Man's pretty solid on the suspension of disbelief front. The Incredible Hulk. He's too big. Is this like a like physics thing, or he's just improbably big? He's improbably big. I mean, he that's the uh, the only a big the the Hulk in the Banner movie is huge. I mean, he is like astronomically huge, and it's just like what the Banner, <laughs> that the is ridiculous. Movie, but the Banner movie is not MCU. No, right. But then you get into the Ed Norton movie, and he's still not the right size. Yeah. He's still a little too much. There, there's something about the construction of the CGI with the, with the Ed Norton movie that I was like, no, the moment I saw it, I went, nope. <laughs> I was like, I was done. I don't know what they did. I, I can't even it, describe it. There, there's something about the CGI version of the Hulk in um, the, the Norton movie that put me off. My issue with the suspension of disbelief with that movie 
was the stock villain feel of the whole thing. Um, Ross and Blonsky were both too irredeemably evil to be... Blonsky was the worst. Yeah. I mean, the two of them, having two of them in the same movie, and it also was like Ross had... he, He didn't have as much power at that stage in the franchise as he had by the end, but he apparently had no checks on him at all. No one was questioning anything he did. He was allowed to do whatever he wanted, and it that struck a a discordant note for me. It's like, why does he keep getting away with this? He was responsible for Harlem getting trashed and he suffered no repercussions for that. And how is he able to, uh, to medically experiment on a soldier from an, an, another country's military without any sort of ramifications? Right. He suffered no consequences for his shitty decisions and he made bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. Um, if there's a suspension of You're disbelief, right, issue around casting that you have to deal before you walk in the door basically you know if you can't get past a casting choice i don't know why you would ever see see a movie um what's that pre that act that you that the the president can actually um in special circumstances authorize military force on american soil but it's uh what's it called pre Anyway, I don't think there's any way Roth had it. No, of course not. Then they turn around and make that as an excuse as to why the military didn't respond during the invasion. And I'm like, what? No, it's no. It There's actually a term. Um, but I forget what it's called. Um, well, the resolution is called the War Powers Resolution. Um... I was kind of looking for is a term that means they can't act. Yes. Something like that. It's, it's something like that. Uh, comitatus. Uh, comitatus. Um, it's, I just, it isn't going to come. But um, that is why the National Guard and why, um, why states have National Guards to act. Um, I got the link. Here, I'll just slap it in the, in the, chat room somebody else found it Arate got it there it is that is the act that prevents the military from acting um outside of special circumstances um that's the p-o-s-s-e-c-o-m-i-t-a-t-u-s act so when once blonsky and hulk started tearing up harlem i think the military probably could have done something. The problem was they were engaged long before then. And they they were tearing up other countries. Wasn't Bruce in South America when, or something like that when Ross first went after him? Mm-hmm. So they were tearing up on foreign soil. Um, at, at, what, at what point did whatever authorization they have, they, they used a lot of resources to try to hunt him down. So his the lack of checks on Ross um, was a suspension of disbelief point for me, ultimately, because it made the government this a villain on its own. The U.S. government became a, like a behind the behind the curtain villain for not dealing, putting any checks on Ross. Um, and then you had Ross, who was just ir- irredeemably evil. And then Blonsky, also irredeemably evil. And that's just too many bad guys. So that movie... You know what my bigger 
suspension of disbelief point was. And it's terrible. This is terrible for this. But Liv Tyler was too young. Well, but Ed Norton wasn't that old. Neither one of them were the right age to have been through a doctorate program and then had all the years between that, them graduating, experimenting. They just weren't the right age. But she was definitely not the right age. Well, she was 31. So she sure the fuck didn't look it, but she was 31. That's um, still not old enough. I agree. It's I mean, not old enough, but she wasn't like, she wasn't, they're casting, I mean, they're casting 17 year olds as 30 year old women. Now, I know so. that's just ridiculous. So I, I felt like she looked too young and she, she didn't come. Neither one of them struck me. Um, correctly for, for the, I think they're both poorly casted. Um, no, Ed Norton was a terrible Bruce Banner. I mean, I was just not on board with that casting at all. But Mark Ruffalo is perfect. He's fucking Mary yes. Poppins. Well, they cast young adults as teenagers to get around um, labor laws. You can work yeah. a twenty-six longer. You can work a twenty-six-year-old longer than you can a fifteen-year-old. So, uh, so the casting was off. We agree on that. But aside from the casting, which is something you may not ever watch a movie over again because it maybe they fall flat or whatever in terms of like the plot or the characterization and all of that stuff i had major characterization issues with the with the thing i had um the plot wasn't awful it wasn't great but there the the problems with the plot was the complete lack of checks and balances and where the fuck was shield where the fuck were they well, they had no use for Banner at the time, so they didn't give a shit right. what Ross did to him. Unless they needed to break the Hulk out and use him for something. So, okay, so we agree. Hulk is just a... The Incredible Hulk is probably the, one of the weakest movies in the franchise. Well, aside from the suspension of just belief issues, I would say it's one of the weakest movies in the franchise because of casting. But setting that aside, when it comes to the suspension of disbelief, it's also one of the weakest because it was just really poorly developed it was a hot mess. Okay, so next. Iron Man 2. <sighs> okay. One of my big suspensions. I know, I know Robert Downey Jr. apparently really likes Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, but let's get in. They have zero sexual chemistry. I agree. Their chemistry is terrible terrible um, i don't believe for a minute that man has ever even popped half an erection for gwyneth paltrow i know he's happily married but you know what i'm saying i mean it's like there's zero there there's like i didn't i didn't mind i um iron man 2 but i i forward through a lot of it and a lot of times when you're forwarding through stuff either because it's boring or because you just are rolling your eyes. And usually an eye roll is about your suspension of disbelief. And there's a lot of issues with the suspension of disbelief there. After everything Tony, and for me, it's after everything Tony had done about cleaning up his company, becoming Iron Man, all of that stuff, his friends just bought it hook, line, and sinker when he was self-destructing. And that to me just, I didn't understand why he'd want to be friends with any of those people. 
Um, I don't understand why he'd want to be in a romantic relationship with Pepper. I don't, un- I mean, it's just, oh, side note, fandom. If you're listening and you're writing about what went on in Iron Man 2, when Tony made Pepper his CEO, he did not give her his company. Stop writing that. A CEO is an employee. They are not an owner. Dear God. <laughs> I've read so many stories where people are like, well, but Tony doesn't own his company anymore. He gave it to Pepper. That's not what that means. That's not ever what that means. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Okay. I actually had a whole lot of problems with Rhodey's um, uh, taking the suit. It, not just taking the suit, but for not being Tony's friend. Yes. I mean, you he see was. your best friend going off the rails, losing do, his shit. You help them. You help them. You don't steal their stuff and get in a big fight that nearly destroys their house. Yeah, you're right, Quinny. He didn't do anything. He was just acting. Basically, he was acting out. He was not really doing anything. He was not doing anything destructive except himself. He was maybe drinking too much and partying too much, but he wasn't doing anything. And and they acted like his friends acted like the whole whiplash thing was his fault. Like the fact that he got, well, they were in Monte Carlo or something, right? Is mm-hmm. that where the race happened? That him getting attacked, that him getting attacked on the racetrack was somehow his fault. How was that his fault? Um, I just felt like there was just so much blame. Like everybody just started. And I understand sometimes, like when I watch Iron Man 2, Iron Man 2 is why I understand the fanon trope of everybody blaming shit on Tony that he didn't do. It's because that's what happened in Iron Man 2. Um Another suspension of disbelief point. Natasha's behavior to me was terrible. She was found out to be a spy. She was lying to them through the whole movie. And yes, from her perspective and from S.H.I.E.L.D.'s perspective, she was doing her job. But the protagonist of that story was Tony Stark. So she was basically an antagonist in that movie. And yet we're supposed to embrace her as an Avenger? Excuse me? You know what bothers me the most about her introduction in Iron Man 2? I was looking forward to the whole Black Widow thing. I was mm-hmm. like, yay, we're going to get a female superhero. It's going to be awesome. And what do we get? We get a honey trap. Mm-hmm. They hoard her. Shield they- hoard the Black Widow, just like the Red Room did. Mm-hmm. They hoard her. And I was like, that's not. No, she doesn't. I love Melinda May as a character, but May does not make up for it. Because May does not exist in the movie verse. Um, the movies only reluctantly acknowledge that the TV show is part of the cinematic universe. So. And it's weird. It's like the TV show is not allowed to contradict the movies, although they do wind up doing that. Um. The point is, is that I was looking forward to getting this awesome, um, kick-ass warrior, warrior, and I got a spy being prostituted by with, a spy agency with a supercilious attitude. So that's not what I wanted. No. So we didn't. And I was like, 
I was so disappointed. I was disappointed, but that didn't challenge my suspension of disbelief that they would do that. No. Because, of course, they would no. do that. But it does make it difficult for me to believe that Tony would accept her. Um, in when the Avengers comes around, I mean, beyond calling her Natashley, he never even gives her a you know what? You know what? Fuck you. You you infiltrated my company. You committed industrial espionage. You shot me up with some medication. I'm still not sure won't eventually kill me because you didn't tell me what was in it or ask me if I wanted it. Shield took Jarvis offline and held Tony hostage in his own house. And that was one thing that when I wrote Unleash Your Demons that I had to fix. I had to make it so that Shield could not fuck with Jarvis because what? Mm -hmm. Well, especially in a time travel situation, Tony was going to be hyper vigilant about Jarvis because um, he lost. Him. I was like, right. I was like, no, that's not happening this time. <laughs> so they, and, and I part, a lot of what they did is they, and I think they kind of fucked up Tony's characterization in that because they kind of set him up to be desperate enough to deal with shield. And Tony wasn't in the first movie. He wasn't. And he found the cure. So they, they did a lot of stuff that starts to feel almost kind of, Manipulate to the point of being like border home, borderline, like almost Stockholm type behavior with him in, in order to get him to want to be part of the Avengers, because that's what that was leading to. Right. It's for him to want to be part of the Avengers enough that they could manipulate him with that bullshit psychological profile. And and the fact that Tony didn't Tony, who has been able to probably spot manipulative behavior since he was a toddler. Doesn't recognize that for what it was. Iron Man 2 is rife with suspension of disbelief issues, but they're not terminal. They're not terminal su suspension of disbelief problems. They're just, they're to the point that they're annoying. And they really irritate The, the thing with Coulson threatening to tase Tony, I think that's just ignorance. Um, I don't think Coulson is actually that kind of character that would threaten to kill Tony. So, I think the person who wrote that really didn't recognize the fact that using a taser on Tony Stark while he had that arc reactor in his body protecting his heart could actually kill him. I think that's just, just pure ignorance on the writer's mm -hmm. part. Yeah. Because I don't think they would have actually set Coulson up to threaten to murder Tony Stark. Which means it's just bad writing. Yeah, they could have had Natasha say it and I would have believed it that that, that 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 was the intent that they meant for um, her to threaten his life but I'm not sure that was ever Coulson's wheelhouse to begin with Coulson was a, a manager they, he was trying to manage Tony trying to manage the situation um, but if they'd had Natasha say it I wouldn't have doubted for a minute that it was a death threat yeah yeah but that whole scene was all this, all the scenes there were just ugly. I there was so much about Iron Man two that just I didn't like. I didn't. Well, I didn't like Pepper. All I thought Tony and Pepper were fine as friends. Once this romantic chemistry started going with them, they felt like trying to push it, and then she just became. And like once she became his CEO, she became really obnoxious. I mean, 
it was like she was like it's like you know she was more interested in being his mom than being his woman and for those of you who don't know the difference there's a big difference like yeah. I don't talk to my husband like he's a child and she always talked to Tony like he was a child I come to him like he's an adult because he is an adult. I don't berate him like a child when I'm angry with him. I tell him, you know, I'm really pissed off with you right now. So um, let, let's just separate. <laughs> you go downstairs. I'll go to my bitch cave. And then when I come down, we'll have a discussion. <laughs> but she treated him like he was a child. So someone asked above, would Tony's PTSD have affected his perception of, man of manipulation? Maybe. I'm going to give a maybe. I actually think that the kind of PTSD that, to me, it seemed like Tony would have had would have made him more leery of anything related to S.H.I.E.L.D. at all. Especially what they did to him. They would have had to, the stuff that done would have had to have compounded his PTSD. But I don't know why he would have wanted to. So... They the problem is they did a very poor job with explaining Tony's motivation for wanting to be involved with, um, with with Shield, uh, especially when Shield did everything they possibly could to turn him off, uh, and called it. They made it, they made it look to the audience like manipulation, and made Tony look kind of honestly a little bit pathetic for falling for it. So um, it's my headcanon that he wanted to be involved with Shield because his dad was, but they never show us that. No. Never. They they just don't give us anything about motivation, really. So, so that was that was a problem. Um, so Iron Man two uh, is rife with minor suspension of disbelief points. It, you, you just start from the beginning and you're just shaking your head through the whole thing. And that being said, I still don't mind it all that much because. Um, I do think it sets up an inter and part part of the reason why I don't think I mind it that much is because Iron Man two the end of it is one of my favorite canon divergence points. So I think some interesting stuff happened to Tony. He went through a journey on that that as a writer I'm willing I want to embrace where he was at at the end of that movie that doesn't involve Pepper and involves him having more control of his life. So. In that regard, it wound up being a good movie for me as as a writer because I'm not going to try to fix the events. I'm, I usually take the events in Iron Man 2 as they happened and then would rather deal with the fallout of it and then use it as a stepping off point for making the future better as opposed to like a hard suspension of disbelief point, which is where I got to back up before that and make that not happen. So I'm not usually trying to undo Iron Man 2. I've got a plot bunny for Tony Stark. Um post Iron Man 2 um, that coincides with the events of Thor um, for next year for probably for the Bonds challenge which will be the two challenges in July we'll, we'll probably do 1025k just like we did this year um, so I want to write a bonding fic for Tony nice as a, probably as a guide maybe a sentinel I don't know I haven't decided I have to figure out which side of my pairing is more empathetic. <laughs> which one's a more realistic <laughs> guide? <laughs> mm. And when you're working I, with two assholes, it's it's, it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and speaking of, so that leads us into 
Thor, which is the next movie in the lineup. Um, Thor. Thor also has a lot of minor suspension of disbelief points where you just kind of go, really? Um, I'm trying to decide if there were any major suspension of disbelief points where I just went, whoa, Nelly, no. Well, the, major, the, the biggest is that Margaret just said in the chat room that, that Loki didn't know he was adopted, that no one knew. Because the implication is, is that, you know, Odin mindfucked his entire people. Well, and Thor Ragnarok gives that infl imp implication too. Yeah, it, it actually makes it, I think, canon that Odin was more than willing to mentally manipulate his entire kingdom to keep a secret. Uh, and that secret was Hela, and I'm pretty sure that secret was also Loki. Yeah. So is that magic, you know, that he's doing, that he's... That he's he used using... Odin Force to do it? I think so. Yeah, I mean, how else, I don't know how else you explain it. Which so, really makes Odin not a good person. Well, yeah, for a lot of reasons. I mean, you could you could take apart his intention. You could um you could take apart and say, okay, he brought Loki to Asgard, and to protect his newly adopted son, he mentally manipulated every single man, woman, and child on Asgard. I mean, have you looked at Loki and Hela? I do wonder why they say that he, that that Thor is the adopted one. I'm just saying, because <laughs> Loki and Hela are two peas in a pod, <laughs> two emo drama filled peas in a pod. Thor is just like his mama. I think that yeah, in that respect, that Loki and Hela are definitely more like Odin. Well, I think that. You can say that that Odin hid the origins of Loki for his own protection, but the other side of it is is that the that the Asgardians and the Frost Giants had a history um, fraught with war and um, and anger and racism and um, and it's not something that would could disappear. Right. Well, it, it was so bad in canon that um, that the Asgardians disliked disliked um, Frost Giants so much that Thor was willing to entertain practically genocide uh, because a couple of Asgardians died. So, I mean, he was willing to defy his father and go and just randomly kill as many uh, Frost Giants as he could get his hands on. Which is what got him in trouble, which is the whole foundational premise of the movie. I think it um, would be an un well, what was she talking about in the chat room about how they let um, they that Loki grew up in an environment where frost giants were hated, um, and I don't think that Odin could have really done much about that without completely mind fucking his people even more. But you can't mix mythology with the MCU. Otherwise, that horse that Odin's riding around on is his grandkid. Right, and that's terrible. We can't do that. So, I even made a plot point in um, Unle "Unleash Your Demons" because in because in mythology, Odin and Loki are actually brothers, not father and son. Right. So when you conflate the two, uh, Slepner or Slepner or however you pronounce that, the horse that Odin rides is Loki's child, which would be his nephew in mythology but in the MCU would be his grandbaby. That's disgusting. So just, you can't, you can't conflate 
mythology with what happens in the MCU. I mean, you can, um, but it's terrible. And we it don't makes recommend things, it. It makes things a lot worse. And, and honestly, you can't reconcile the inconsistencies. But, you know, just they're, they're saying in the chat room is MCU fucked mythology. Well, I think the MCU, what Marvel did in the beginning, what Stan Lee did, was take inspiration from mythology. Yeah, I agree. It's the same thing as fucking it. Because SG-1 does the same thing. It mean it's a myth. I don't know how you. I mean, a lot of things fuck around with myth, and and it's perfectly acceptable. So, um, but anyway, so you have this, you have this issue where Thor is raised to hate frost giants, such that a relatively minor infraction is he's willing to go and kill as many of them as he can get his hands on. Which is they but, snuck into the, they snuck into Asgard and, and into the treasure room. But even in that hatred, knowing that Loki is a frost giant doesn't make Thor love him any less. True, but I'm not talking about this. And that's not about Thor. It's about yeah, it, the it's, population it, 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 as a whole. Illustrative of how much they hated frost giants, and that Odin did nothing in the course of Loki's life to try to mitigate that, to try to, to dial down that hatred because it has to come out eventually. Secrets don't say secrets forever. The only way to keep them secret forever is for only one person to know it and then die. That's the only way. So it was, it was going to come out. And instead of trying to plan for that day and prepare for the day that, that it would come out that Loki was a frost giant, he didn't do anything except suppress the memories. Friend, Fenrir isn't dead um, in the MCU the, the first time we see him. He is in stasis and he eventually gets killed by the Hulk. He didn't die chained up in a cave. Yeah, the big giant wolf. Yeah, yeah, he's just chained up and in stasis and eventually Hulk kills him during the battle. Yeah, he wouldn't have been, I don't think he'd have been chained up if he was, now the soldiers were dead, but I don't think um, Fenrir would have been chained up if he was actually dead. I think he was chained down because, uh, there, like I said, there was, I don't think there's any reason. He was chained down, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. In Ragnarok? So there's no reason to chain him down if he's actually dead. Now the soldiers were clearly dead because they were mummified. But, but I think that, um, that the that the wolf was actually in the same kind of suspended state that she was. I think that he was probably just. I think he was in some kind of sleep. I don't. I didn't get the impression that she was asleep. I think she was like locked away. She was like in prison, which I think he's actually honestly more cruel than killing her. Yeah, um, but it I was agree. selfish. I think it was selfishness that. Um, because he couldn't kill her because she was his daughter. So instead of killing her, he imprisoned her because that's what he could live with, not what she could live with. Yeah. So if it, for me, the, you hit, you hit, you hit a suspension of disbelief point um, almost right away with once you find out that Loki's a frost giant, which is the fact that the hatred against the frost giants has been allowed to continue in Asgard. They've basically been allowed to be bigots about this uh, for so long with Loki being the prince. So that's an issue. Um, 
I think my next big suspension of disbelief point, I can understand Odin being really angry at Thor. And uh, I, and I think he banished him. I, I read it as him banishing it, him, hoping he would become worthy and come back. That's why he didn't just permanently banish him. I think if he didn't want him back, he wouldn't have banished him with his hammer. Right. He gave him a way to come back. So I, I didn't have any kind of like suspension of disbelief point around that. My next big suspension of disbelief point was, I think, and I, I, I haven't seen the first Thor in a while, was when the Warriors 3 decided to go commit treason. Commit treason. Because Frigga decided to make Loki regent. Now, granted, Loki had been naughty um by letting the frost giants in through his the secret passages the path pathways that he had uh which would have gotten him in trouble if anybody had known about it but that didn't change the fact that he was still regent at the time that that action occurred so uh, yeah and heimdall let them he, he sent them to earth so the fact is is that odin should have punished the warriors three and heimdall for committing treason because in that he didn't yeah. It, it brings his own authority into question. Well, they don't basically have to deal with Loki until he comes back from attacking Midgard, right? So, I mean, Loki's only very briefly ever back once once he goes to Earth with the, the destroyer thing and then he falls. So it could be that Odin just was like, well, it took, took it as a, re a reprieve that he didn't have to deal with their bad behavior because Loki wasn't around to make them account for it. And then when Loki came back, basically, they could brand him a war criminal. And see, the thing is, now that's a suspension of disbelief point for me in Avengers, which I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but it ties into Thor, which is, I don't believe for a second that Loki would have been in trouble for his actions on Midgard, on Earth, because that's the kind of shit that, they, that Thor and his friends did all the time. Maybe not going and trying to conquer a, a planet, but killing 80 people. Eh, big deal. But that's Midgard what they did. was a protected planet. But so were some of the other realms where they went and that Thor and his um, friends went and got up yeah, to shit with. They fucked around in other realms, but Midgard is... Odin swore to defend Midgard. But he didn't. No, that's true. When the, Kree and, when the Kree and the Skrulls came... But that's also he, mythology, right? So... Well, I don't know sort of, what the MCU, sort of the casket of winners was it ever on Earth? Um, did they bring the did the Frost Giants actually bring the um, casket of winters was on? I don't know if it was on Earth or not, but Odin um, d fought them back on Earth, and then but I don't know if the casket was on Earth. And then they brought the Tesseract to Earth. The Frost Giants are responsible for the Tesseract being on Earth. So the thing about whether or not he his him swearing to defend the nine realms was very changeable because he didn't defend the nine realms from Thor's you know um, going around looking for fights he didn't defend them from that so I don't but I don't actually believe now if if Loki had actually conquered Earth I think that would have been a problem but he didn't he just got up to some warmongering 
Right? And honestly, I don't think Loki really honestly tried to conquer Earth. I don't think he tried either. <laughs> but when you think about what the actual the actual bad acts, okay, it's like Loki intended to conquer Earth. Well, that would have gotten you in trouble, young man. Think about it. That would have gotten you in trouble, young man. And he killed like 500 people. Eh. Book to do. I honestly do not believe that Odin gives a flying fuck about, you know, 500 or 1,000 or even 10,000. Um people from earth i just don't think he cares because defending the realm is not the same thing as defending one person i also think that the only reason he put loki in jail was because um to assert his own authority it's the same reason he tossed thor to earth with his hammer to assert his authority it was about demonstrating his ability to control loki and thor right and also because by punishing by I think because this was the way I interpreted it, became my headcanon, was that by making Loki's crimes out to be worse than they were and punishing him for them, he didn't have to deal with Heimdall or the Warriors Three. Because if they dealt with everything as opposed to what Loki just did on uh, on Midgard, they would have had to deal with all of it. And that would have gotten Thor's best friends in trouble. So, but the suspension of disbelief points for the the issues for me in Thor were not nearly, other than just basically most of the suspension of disbelief issues, you just go, you you write off under, wow, Odin's a giant bag of dicks. And if you accept that headcanon, then your suspension of disbelief for most of it is solved. It's like, wow, he's a shitty father and a terrible king. Moving on. Um a it's plus parenting. Yeah, A plus parenting. But it's not just A plus parenting. It's it's you have to call it A plus governing too. So true. Um true. so but Thor wasn't too bad on the suspension of disbelief front for me. Now some people may have different feelings about that, but I didn't have big issues. You know so, what though? Himdall actually rep- um throughout the entire franchise, Himdall um manages to um or is it Heimdall? Am I saying it wrong again? Heimdall, um, yeah. Heimdall. Heimdall demonstrates repeatedly that he doesn't actually give a shit about who's on the throne. True. He does what he wants. <laughs> he has absolutely no respect for the crown. <laughs> um, I actually... Unless it's sitting on Thor's head. Yeah, I was going to say, my, my headcanon is that he's very attached to it being on Thor's head. Um, because I think he recognizes... now. In Sentry, um, one of the things that will come up in the sequel to Sentry is that Heimdall knows the Norns have talked to him that his primary purpose is to protect Thor. That Thor has to become the king of Asgard, and that that is what Heimdall, the order, the the, the what he's marching to. So, um, because in in Sentry, I have it that come up that basically Odin has blown off the the Norns um, guidance about how to handle Hela. Not that not that Heimdall knows that that's what's happened. But um, and so they've told him that that the future of Asgard rests with Thor, that he must become king. And so that's his primary purpose and he just doesn't care about anything else. I buy um, it. <laughs> it makes not- perfect sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I because ha- I had to make sense of that, right? I'm like, I don't think Heimdall cares about what Odin wants, clearly. Otherwise, he wouldn't have let Thor go do what Thor wanted to do. 
it's it's also interesting that in in Ragnarok that even in the midst of running and hiding for his own life, he still had an eye out for Thor. Just Thor. Yeah, just Thor. He was still listening for Thor. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Thor was Thor overall wasn't too bad, and the it, the places where I had issues, um, I was able to come up with a head cannon that the cannon never contradicted. So, you know, I was able to move on from that. Okay, so I think at this point we back up to because the next thing uh, in the timeline timeline would be um, the Avengers. But uh, before we got to the Avengers, we got Captain America, the first Avenger, and uh, <sighs> I guess I guess my suspension of disbelief issues with Captain America, the first Avenger, actually didn't come up until later. <laughs> It wasn't until I saw how he was going to fold into the franchise that I went back to the movie and went, no. <laughs> but when I first saw it, I didn't have the same issues. Him trying to get into the army over and over and over and over again, and then kind of almost finding that to be an admirable trait, that was the thing that was a sticking point for me the first time I saw it. I mean, he's I committing like, fraud, and they're okay with it. Yeah, I'm like, why are they so kicked bad about that? Why don't they put him in jail yet? Was was the question I was asking myself. Now the body mass change didn't bother me at all, actually, because comic book science. Right. I'm like, okay, yeah, I buy it because if you, you know, I've also, uh, if I can believe that Bruce Banner can become the Incredible Hulk, then I have no problem believing that little Steve became Big Steve. Um, <laughs> if I can deal with, uh, for me, it always comes down to. I know the body mass thing really throws a lot of people but for me it's it's the baseball size fusion reactor in somebody's chest um and if i can deal with iron man and the arc reactor uh, comic book science i mean that's kind of the for me the benchmark um because also because biologically while there there is nothing almost tony would have had to have lost ribs whole ribs in order for the arc reactor housing to make sense yeah so I just, tr I, I have to say, you know, mm. even if I believe that he got it in there, that they got it in there and they got it working and it's going to, it's going to be okay for him. That part, what I don't believe is that they successfully took it out. No, no, no. At that point, his bones would have grown. I mean, his, what, re what remodeling he'd had in his rib cage, it would have, it would have collapsed. It, it would have collapsed his chest to pull out the arc reactor housing. Um, they the would have size had to of it would have impacted his heart mm -hmm. and his, his heart, lungs. his lungs, his lung capacity. Yeah. Um, but I don't. The thing, well, because of the way the ribs attach in the back and the way the muscles wrap around them, um, he would have had to have probably been what what I think that what they'd have had to have done when they took it out was give him for starters an artificial sternum. And then they would have had to create some um, artificial rib joints to connect to the sternum and then wire the fuck out of it all. Like everything would have been wired together and ribs are supposed to be more, more mobile than that. So every breath in that area would have been painful because that's, you know, the, the, everything is geared to move a little bit, the expansion of your rib cage when you breathe. So it's not completely rigid. So yeah, I d I think it would have been extremely painful, both in and yeah. out. 
So, um, but we, we managed to suspend our disbelief around the incredible medical impossibility of what happened to Tony Stark. And we go into the, into it with suspending our disbelief around miniaturized fusion reactors. Um, and so, so, if we're suspending our disbelief around that comic book science, I have no problem nope, with didn't, it. Didn't phase me at all. That serum serum enhanced muscles doesn't bother me and a hey, tiny bit. The view's not bad. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and also, the CGI of Skinny Steve was exceptionally well done. It was. Um, it was very well done. I was like, "Holy shit! Look at you guys! That was great." But the, see, this 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 brings up the point about willing suspension of disbelief. If you go into a, a comic book movie with your suspension of disbelief already challenged about comic book science, you do not have willing suspension of disbelief. You are going in doubting. And expecting the movie to convince you, and it will never happen. It's like watching Star Trek, um, expecting the physics to make sense. You know, it, if you already doubt that it's going to make sense, it's never going to make sense because there's no, it, it, there's no actual science going on. Well, Star Trek has some science behind it, but, um, I mean, you know, there's that whole flux capacitor thing. I mean, yeah, how does it go from needing nuclear material? To trash. To recycling trash. I'm like, what? Really? <laughs> but that's the thing. is, So if, if your suspension of disbelief points are around the science, you don't, you don't have willing suspension of disbelief. So this was not the, this was not a good example <laughs> for you, for you. You're, if, if you walk in and go, okay, the science doesn't make any sense. Um, okay, so it's like when I watch a disaster movie, my I have a certain suspension of disbelief around the way the disasters work, how people are going to get rescued, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and there's a certain amount of scientific suspension of disbelief, right? So I went into, and when you read the core, she she went to the core, core knew right where I was going to go. I love the core, but it's, so, it's, a, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. <laughs> but when I read the, when I read the premise about the core, I was like. I knew I, I I had my suspension of disbelief set. The bar was set low because I I knew the science was ridiculous. The Earth's core has stopped spinning, and they're going to fix it. Okay, whatever. I'm like, and they're going to travel to the core to restart it. All right. So my suspension of disbelief challenged, but I I, I dealt with it. I went into the movie with some going. I'm going to just put all that aside just to enjoy this movie. I had to tell you, folks, it is great acting great pacing actually probably one of the best paced disaster movies out there but anyway but then they have radio communication to the center of the <laughs> earth and i went you motherfuckers you just had to push it just a little bit too far i love big disaster movies the day after the morrow san andreas fault um i just i love them i freaking loved um rampage uh, yeah run rampage was great I loved Rampage. I was like, get it. Oh my God, look at that giant alligator. <laughs> it was awesome. But was it believable outside of, of the circumstances that I was in the theater watching Rock and a big giant monkey take on a giant alligator dinosaur thing? Not remotely, but it was entertaining <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> I had, and the funny thing is, in, in, but believable wasn't the issue. You went in prepared for a giant, right. a giant, a giant gorilla, right? So you're like, if you're going in prepared for a giant gorilla and you're willing to believe that something could make a giant gorilla, that's the point. 
and you're willing to suspend your disbelief for as long as there's a giant gorilla on the screen. The problem is when they introduce things that you're like, what? And they did have, to me, a critical suspension of disbelief failure in Rampage. And the critical failure to me was that the wolf and the alligator had mutations. Both, both of them had significant physical mutations. The wolf could fly. The gator had all of these weird, like the barbed tail and all of these weird things that have, they actually mutated. They didn't just get big. But the gorilla didn't, and there was no reason why. For me, see, I thought about that too. But for me, the reason I thought that it happened was this was just my head cannon that I developed after the fact. Is that um, that the gorilla mutated in a confined habitat space where it was just him, and then he, but but the other two, they mutated in the wild. So there's an, there could be an implication there that they actually are a mixture of more than one animal. Well, um, that doesn't make a lot of. Mm. I mean, none I, of it makes a whole lot of sense. That doesn't. But that, it, but the monk but the monkey was alone. But he wasn't alone. He was very near the grizzly bear habitat. Yeah, he killed the grizzly. He killed killed the, the grizzly, grizzly wasn't exposed. Well, even if the grizzly was exposed, uh, George killed him before anything happened. So the, the best part about the movie Rampage is that The Rock refused to do it if the monkey died. Yes, that was great. He said, "I my 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 viewers come to see a specific kind of movie, and I'm not going to send them all home sad." And we would have been. So me and George come out of this together. <laughs> That's right, and I'm walking, and he was ready to walk away. If they didn't change the script, so they cha they changed the script. I appreciate that. But you know, the thing is, when you're going into a movie, if you don't have a suspension of disbelief around the premise of the movie, then you don't. Then then nothing the movie does is going to help you, because you don't believe that you're you're not willing to set aside your your what you know to be possible in order to enjoy it. Okay, so. When I, anytime anybody says their suspension of disbelief point is about something that's related to comic book science, like, well, then you you weren't set to you your suspension of disbelief is around the premise, not anything in the actual movie. So, although the, you come again, but again, you come across that improbable versus impossible. We'll accept the impossible science, but the improbable science. Eh. I have problems with the Spider-Man movies, the um, the uh, Tobey Maguire ones, not for the science and not for the fact that he has webs shooting out of his wrist, which actually I think is probably the coolest part of that iteration of Spider-Man. I got real fed up with the Crawfest, okay? I mean, how many people can solve Ugh. their way through a movie? Let me count the ways. That it happened in Spider-Man. All the It got crime. to the point where when the new one came out with Andrew Garfield, my husband went to see it by himself because I refused. And he came back and I said, is the new one a crybaby too? Because I'm not watching it if it is. <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't handle it. Why it are seemed you absolutely, it, it, it didn't seem realistic at all. There's no crying in baseball. And there shouldn't be any damn crying in Spider-Man. And also, honestly, can we have a Spider-Man? 
Yes, a grown-ass man who smokes pot and fucks Deadpool. Right? I Tom Holland needs to grow up, and they need to keep him. Tom Holland is actually an adult, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm real fed up with Spider-Boy. Yes. Um... I don't, I don't read the comic books. I want an adult Spider-Man in a movie. Yeah, that's what I want. I want. I want. I want the. I I cast an adult Spidey. Where's my adult Spidey casting? Having said that, I wrote, "We Peter, <laughs> we Spider Boy," <laughs> in Unleashed you did, Demons. You did but, what? Uh, so oh, I wrote, you wrote we. You wrote him very tiny. Yeah, tiny. He's like four or five. But that was a timeline. I mean, I there was no changing that. So, but I have decided that he is going to have natural webbing because that's that that's what makes sense. Natural webbing makes sense versus uh, yeah, the the well, the, the uh, the, the thing it just I was mm. no, he's not really Spider Man yet. He um, he will start to come into his gifts in puberty. Well, that's pretty much what happens with the X Men, right? That they start to come into their gifts in puberty. He's a mutant. So. Okay, so I'm sharing my um my adult Spidey casting. Grown ass man. Because we need that. We need a grown ass man. Oh yeah, I'm on board with that. Who is that? That is Douglas Booth. I am enjoying the look of Douglas Booth. And I could see kind of, and the reason why I picked him was because we, I could kind of see Tom Holland. Yeah. Kind of looking like that when he gets older. So. I'm trying to pick my insertion point for the sequel for Unleash Your Demons. So. I and the inser- as we it. say, the insertion point is often a pain in the ass. It <sighs> is. The insertion point is definitely a pain in the ass. So. Um. So, so we Cap- were on Captain America, the first Avenger. My biggest suspension is belief problem with um, Captain America, the first Avenger, was um, him being the most badass possible leader soldier in the world with no training. Yes. It's like, wh- I, get, I got that he is got great reflexes, great, you know, I get why they l- let him. And once he had great results, I could see why they let him go into battle. But why they let him lead made no sense. No sense. And the further you, that was, that was one of the suspension disbelief points at the time. It was minor, meaning I kind of cocked my head to the side and went, hmm. But once I got to the Winter Soldier, then I went back Duh. and I went, oh, I got a hard stop on that now. See, for <laughs> me, I thought when I watched the first movie, I was like, okay, the, the Howling Commandos are going to follow him because he rescued them. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. Um, he did for them what nobody else was willing to do. I get it. That's loyalty. But by the time we get to Winter Soldier, he still hasn't got any damn training. Shield letting him in the field without any tactical training. What the fuck is wrong with you, Nick Fury? Well, they didn't need to train him. He was a weapon. And that's all he was to any of them. The only person that cared about Steve Rogers as a person died. 
the day he became Captain America. He was the only person who cared what kind of person Steve came out of this this experiment on the other side like. Everybody else, I mean, Bucky Barnes is, is practically a cipher in the movie. He doesn't have any... Okay, Captain America was a stage name. They did brevet his rank once they put him in the field, but he was in no way and actually worked his way up to Captain. But at the time... When he was um, when he was on doing the the tour, he was that was a stage name. He did not actually have the rank of captain. He you never saw those bars on his shoulder until he was actually in combat, which means they brev probably breveted his rank to captain. Which I do not know what the foundation for doing that was, um, because they were putting him in charge. He was a propaganda yeah. tool. Against Hydra uh, uh, for America. Um, even in the field, he was still on stage being a trained monkey. So, yes, him being a captain without finishing basic is a suspension of disbelief issue. But I think there's a lot of implication about how it was done. Because it was, I agree, wartime promotions do not go from private to captain. But this is a comic book universe. And so the fact that they made special considerations when they're fighting Hydra, who has alien technology and super weapons, you can't, you, you got it. If you're going to take away the improbable or impossible action on one side, you have to take away the impossible impetus. Okay. You can't just eliminate one. Dark as how the hell no one noticed that Bucky was enhanced. I don't think that any of them got a medical exam after being held hostage. But here's a question. Why didn't Bucky tell anyone that he was enhanced? Well, I actually have seen, there's a fan theory that it was nearly dying that activated Bucky's serum. That it was, huh. it was, it was the fall and the damage to his arm that triggered the serum to actually do anything. And I, because he had had no signs of enhancement prior to that point, I'm all on board with that fan theory. I believe it. I buy it. That that makes a hell of a lot more sense to me than him hiding it, even from Steve. Yeah. Um, but I was looking at, to me, the biggest suspension of disbelief for me in, and I, I found a headcanon that lets me deal with it, but it's not a good headcanon, was that Steve didn't try to get out of the Valkyrie that he so willingly went down with that ship into the ice. Well, like, I use that headcanon personally in uh, Unleash Your Demons. He didn't try right. to get out of the ship. He, I he mean, didn't try to get out. You see him on in the ice with his fucking shield on his chest. That didn't happen by accident. He laid down, put his shield on his chest, and went to sleep and died. Or he believed he was going to die. No. So... Oh. One of the things that, like, in, re in reading the chat, and I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong. No, uh, this isn't about right or wrong, but everybody's suspension of disbelief levels, their tolerances are different. And that's okay. You, if, if I say to you, they did a good job of suspension of disbelief and you couldn't stand it because your suspension of disbelief, you couldn't get there, that doesn't mean either one, one of us is right or one of us is wrong. We just have different things we like. It just means that we have different tolerances for minor suspension of disbelief. The point at which I go, fuck that, maybe in a different place than yours. Um, 
But one of the things you have to do, I think, when you're looking at suspension of disbelief is, like I said, you have to look at both sides of it. Like there's when they do something impossible in response to something impossible, you can't say that's impossible when you haven't dealt with the the, the impossible hydra. Okay, hydra hive, that whole all of that crap that and the tesseract and the weapons they were building and their plans and their intentions for humanity as a driving force as a as a motivator as a central source of conflict that creates a, a, there's a counter like to that and the counter is comic book science comic book promotions you know, comic book military actions that don't necessarily make sense in the real world, but in the real world, we don't have Hydra. True. Or Red there Skull. Oh, the Red Skull. We don't have the Tesseract on Earth. So you can't you can't just look at one side. If you want to say that's impossible, well, I'll say, well, so is Hydra. It doesn't mean that your disbelief wasn't challenged. I'm just saying that, you know, they may it could have maybe done it better. I'm just saying that you have to look at both sides of the equation. And like we were, we, there was a discussion um, and it was a good discussion about whether or not Bucky Barnes had dissociative identity disorder. And, and one of the things that struck me about the conversation was it was rooted in real practical, modern psychological techniques and what we understand about DID. And I'm like, and my count, my, my, contribution to that discussion was how can you apply you know literal what we know about literal experiential psychology to what bucky barnes went through it 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 is outside of our possible probable experiential um understanding therefore the psychology would be different you're going to have comic book psychology when you have comic book experiences and so um, I do think that, and part of the argument was that um, you can't really trigger um, DID, but I do think that the Winter Soldier could arguably, very easily, you could really make a case for the Winter Soldier being an alternate personality, just like the Hulk, that are created for the same reason, is to protect the core personality. Um, and then when you add in Bucky's brainwashing, you've got a potential way to trigger an alternate personality to come out. It actually tracks when you consider the comic book experience that Bucky went through or the movie experience that Bucky went through. It doesn't track if you're talking about real world application because we don't have any application for someone frozen being taken in and out of cryostasis and Torture. Sub, sub, subjected to torture for year after year after year and had their brain wiped. So, you know, this one of the things about suspension of disbelief when you're saying that doesn't make any sense. Well, neither does the circumstances. The circumstances don't make sense either. So you, you, it's kind of hard to criticize one side without criticizing the other. You can't apply real world application. And I think sometimes fan fiction tries too hard to pr put reality on top of comic book cir circumstances. Which is silly. It's silly. I mean, you can do it, but it's not. It's I mean, silly. you got you got to go with your threshold on that. What can you tolerate? Um, I, I mean, like I, you know, I felt like in a world, I, I harp on this because I did get a little bit of shit from somebody. I feel like in a world that can tolerate a miniaturized fusion reactor, that we can tolerate a miniaturized fission reactor. But the miniaturized fission reactor was way too much for somebody. 
who oh, made well, sure they can, I, they can suck my ass. And so they made sure I knew that 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 isn't possible. And I was like, I mean, there's a teeny tiny fusion reactor. So, so and actually, fission reactors are, as far as I know, smaller than fusion reactors. So, hush. Touch your pothole. Anyway. Um, yeah, but you're right, Dark. Con context and internal consistent logic are key. And the problem with suspension of disbelief is when you break the belief is because you've strayed outside the consistent logic that you've created in your story. But sometimes, I think sometimes an audience may fail to, or part of an audience may fail to appreciate the internal consistency of the logic. And that could be because the show, the movie creator, the book writer, whoever, didn't do a good enough job showing it to you. They left it also just because they don't like the genre. I mean, I encounter plenty of people say, oh, well, I hate science fiction. I hate superhero movies. And they don't watch them because they can't stand them and they don't believe in them. And they don't understand them and they don't want to. Yeah. And, and that's if, if, if you're in that boat with any genre, you don't have willing suspension of disbelief. What you have is disbelief and no one is going to convince you otherwise. And irritation. So if an if you have that one reader who's harping at you and saying this is impossible or that's not possible or God help us all that's not the way magic works, like, um, fuck you. There's no you know what <laughs> if someone said that to me I would you kiss my entire whole ass. <laughs> yes, uh, as opposed to her entire asshole. You know? <laughs> it's just it's 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 good either way you put those words. <laughs> um, so. When it comes to, <laughs> if, if people say that, that's not the way spirit animals work. Really? You got, really? You, you have some reference for, that I don't on this? That's not the way magic works. I'm sorry, asshole, magic doesn't work. So, <laughs> what you've got is someone coming into your saying, story. Just like, what? Yeah. And so these people that's how magic fucking works in my world. <laughs> and it, I'm going to be... I'm going to be internally consistent, asshole. So there. Um, and these people are coming into your story prepared to find problems, which means they're not the people that you are trying to suspend disbelief for. Okay. You're trying to suspend the disbelief for the people who are coming into your story wanting to believe what you wrote. And it's the failure of disbelief is not in that those outliers who are critiquing everything you do. You fail to suspend disbelief when the audience who comes to you raring and willing to embrace what you've got all go, oh no, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That's the failure. That's the failure on the part of the of the author or the director or whatever, is when the audience universally goes, uh-uh. No, uh -uh, uh -uh. we came in, we were ready to embrace this kooky idea, but this is just way beyond our ability to cope. That's why there are all these articles right now on the internet cir circling about how the mar how the MCU ruined Steve, Steve Rogers. Right, because they fucked our suspension of disbelief. It's like everything we know about Steve says that he would do anything for Bucky and they create a situation where he's letting Bucky be tortured by Hydra for like 40 years, 50 they years. They violated. So, okay. They violated their own characterization, number one. Number two, if he was so keen to get that dance with Peggy Carter, why the hell didn't he rip a fucking hole in the Valkyrie to get out of it? 
He didn't. He laid down and put his shield on his chest and went to sleep. I I don't get it. I don't get how they thought that was... I mean, they wanted that symbolism, right? Of them finding the shield. That That's why they staged that scene the way they did. They staged that scene so that when the shield people came into the ship and they shined that light, we would see the shield and we would know that they had found Captain America. But they didn't take into effect how the hell he got into that position. It's because he laid down and put his shield on his chest and went to sleep. Instead of trying like hell to get out of that ship. Right, which is it's it, and the thing is, I I have taken on board now because of that one visual. They want to give you this powerful visual, and what they've done is created a powerful fan theory that Steve Rogers was so depressed about, and you can only conclude about Bucky Barnes's death that he basically committed suicide. And was so he goes from committing suicide in Captain America the um, the First Avenger to. Allowing all the events of the MCU to happen, including his wife, supposedly, um, working with Hydra for decades. Just so he could go back in time and live his white man fantasy? No. It's bullshit. It, it is a direct violation of their own characterization when he went to war with the other Avengers to protect Bucky Barnes. Everything he did from the moment he found out Bucky Barnes was alive was a fucking nightmare and he did all of it for Barnes. And then he turns around, goes back in time and lets Barnes get tortured by Hydra for four decades? No. Fucking Marvel. No. And, the thing, <laughs> and, and this is sometimes a, a violation of a character characterization can fuck your suspension of disbelief more than a plot problem more than a giant plot hole okay a violation of characterization can really fuck you up um like i mean to me like if you look at sga um Ford taking that jumper and escaping after at the end of season one, complete plot hole. Because Ford doesn't have the ATA gene. But it, what we all got past it because honestly, plot holes aren't as big a deal in a, in most respects as completely fucking your characterization, which we also got to in the Winter Soldier. So we have a lot of suspension of disbelief issues in, I think we're only going to get through the, we may get through the, I'd like to, you think we have time to go through the Avengers because. Yeah, we can. That would wrap I up mean, the first wave. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of issues in Captain America. Unfortunately, some of them don't become apparent until you see movies further on in the franchise. So at least that was that way for me. But there were some issues up front. So we kind of went over that. So then we get to the Avengers. And I think that's where we are, right? Because we're at the Avengers. I can't go into all the stuff with Peggy Carter because if I do, I'm going to have to go down the Jarvis rat hole and I just can't deal with it. Okay, so let's talk about the Avengers. Did it strike anybody else as fucking implausible? That Coulson could get all the way up that elevator without Tony's permission. Because Tony did not learn his lesson when it came to S.H.I.E.L.D. And has let S.H.I.E.L.D. override him and his security yet again. 
No. No. I do not believe for a second that that made any sense. It didn't make any fucking sense. That and, and that Jarvis would say my security protocols are being overridden. Ah. Oh. That it happened once was egregious. That trying to let it happen again, bullshit. And so that's early on enough that you got a major. You're infuriated fairly early in the movie, which is never the goal. <laughs> so there's that. Um. Suspension of disbelief point. Okay. I I was scratching my head about this in the theaters. I was like, what? Uh, Iron Man tackles Thor off of that little ledge, leaving Loki behind, their prisoner. And then they proceed to have a giant smackdown down on the ground. And Loki stays put. And they don't really question that. That was I mean, it was the, part it was of it is like this little brother thing. Like I'm hoping to watch my brother get his ass whooped. Maybe, but, but the, the thing other side is, of it is he wanted to get caught. Well, it was obvious he wanted to get caught. What the problem was is that nobody really questioned it except for Tony. Did that seem like it was too easy? Which, again, feeds into the fan theory about, you know, how everybody dismisses everything that Tony says. Because really the only person who questioned how easy that was, was Tony. Yeah, they they really should have, like, um, titled the last movie Avengers colon Tony was right. Yes, Tony was right. Yeah. Not Endgame, but I told you so. Right? <laughs> And in that perspective, it's fucked up that he had to die for it. Yeah, exactly. Also, major suspension of disbelief issue. We didn't know it at the time, but once it was confirmed that Loki was under the influence of the scepter, and it's clear looking in the in the in the that his eyes were blue and sometimes weirdly blue. Why didn't Thor notice what color his brother's eyes were? Well, I got nothing. I mean, yeah, me either. Tony, me either. I mean, uh, Loki can change his appearance, but why didn't Loki? I mean, why didn't Thor go? You know, why is he only changing his eyeballs? And how many people live to see the change of color in? Um, in, I mean, I don't think that did anybody even know that Barton's eyes were changed because of the scepter. Uh, Fury was there. Col was Coulson there? No, Coulson wasn't down there at that time because Barton shot Fury um, in the chest, um, in the vest. Um, Nat did, you're right. Nat, Nat's the only one that sees Barton after the fact and sees the eye color change. So... Well, but down in the thing when it happened, when it happened at the time and his eyes were weird, Nick Fury saw it. And they had video of it, didn't they? So we say Fury, we say Fury, Nat, Fury and Nat knew about the eye color change. 
So they might have suspected that Loki was also under the influence of the scepter. Well, but which if, makes it if Nat knew, everybody knew. How did Nat know? I, Nat encountered Barton while he was brainwashed, fought with him, and kicked him in the head, recalibrated right. his brain, so to speak. But that and, was all. That was all like all in the same scene. She did the brain. It's not like she knew before she saw him there. But she definitely but, would have noticed that his eyes weren't weren't quite right. But didn't they have? Because she didn't they they had security footage though of Barton. Everybody yeah. had to know his eyes weren't right. They had security footage of him in um, Germany, and they had security footage of him um, leaving um, the facility, leaving that that enter, wherever they're doing that thing with the tesseract. Because she was and watching. Loki did do it to more than just Clint. Um, yeah, when he first came through. Uh, so the implication is is that Fury and, and Natasha probably most definitely knew that Loki had the same look in his eyes that all of his victims did. Yeah. But Thor is the only one who would have known what Loki's natural eye color was. Right. And that was why it was a big deal for me once we found out that they confirmed that he was under the influence of the scepter is why didn't Thor notice that his brother's eye color was fucked up? Now, I've seen fan theories that say that the scepter's control was intermittent. That it came and went so that he had more autonomy than Barton did. Um, I don't know if that's true. It doesn't I mean Barton didn't suffer for lack of ability to, for independent thinking. He just lacked... I, it's almost like he lacked the will to care. It was like his m moral compass was turned off or something. Because he, he planned. I mean, it wasn't like Barton was a, a puppet, right? He planned what they should do and how they should go and where they should... Right. Right? He didn't... That He clearly was capable of rational thinking and logical thinking. Maybe not rational, but logical thought. And he was capable of tactical planning. I think that also foreshadows Wanda and her abilities, um, which come from the Mind Stone, which came out of the Scepter. Um, and also, I think it speaks to just how much damage she could do, and they would never even know it. Yeah, Thor was kind of a little bit, but he was also very intent on getting Loki to come home with him. Even to the point that he let Loki get close enough to stab him. Yo, Thor really wanted his brother back. He thought he lost Loki. Um, and then he gets him back. And he wanted to take him home. Yeah. And Barton, Barton was so capable of, of planning and thought. That he... Um, two arrows nearly brought the helicarrier down. If Iron Man hadn't been there... Honestly, if Tony Stark hadn't saved the day, the helicarrier would have crashed because of two arrows. So Barton knew exactly what he was doing. And he was not, he may have, he may have pulled, he may have, there's, I mean, he may have pulled his punches when he shot Fury in the vest, but he did not pull his punches when he shot those arrows on the, he, the one that exploded and did the initial damage to the helicarrier and the one that he shot into that um, outlet port on the computers that took the computers offline. Two arrows. I don't. Yeah, I don't think Thanos had a connection with the scepter. I think that he 
did all the damage he needed to do with the scepter before he ever gave it to Loki. And the only way to undo that damage would have been to give him a recalibration or maybe, you know, a thorough Hulk smashing. Um, or you know, just to break the connection between him and the scepter. Um, or to have somebody else use the scepter on him to break him free. I don't think Loki was capable of breaking himself free with the scepter. Um, suspension of disbelief issue. Let's talk about um, compromised agents with a Quinjet and their access and their ability to track the helicarrier was not locked out. Why not? Why were they able to, why did they have codes to be able to land the, that Quinjet? It doesn't make any sense. Right? Why were they able to find the, Quin, the, the helicarrier? It doesn't make sense. But they were tracking, presumably they were tracking the scepter. I mean, you could argue that. But they still had um, the right radio codes. So. So annoying. So Avengers had, all, I would say, a lot of, like, little. I, mean, I got to the movie delighted with it. I love the first Avengers movie. I saw it multiple times in the theaters. But there were a lot of little suspension of disbelief points where I went, hmm. Where I'm out of the movie noticing that something is going on back in it. But I didn't have any terminal, like totally critical suspension of disbelief problems until later in the series when I look back at the Avengers and I go, hmm. Actually, well, were one of my biggest suspension of disbelief problems with the Avengers is that S.H.I.E.L.D. actually had a nuke. <sighs> They had more than one. Um, the use of nuclear weapons is thoroughly and carefully controlled. Our um, our jets, our our military people, um, our pilots—they don't carry nuclear weapons. You won't. There's no nuclear weapon on an F-16. Okay, they have missiles. Yes. They have um, lots of weapons, but they don't have a fucking nuke. Nuclear weapons and nuclear material is strictly controlled. How the fuck did S.H.I.E.L.D. have one? Yeah, and that nobody More questioned. than one. Well, and the suspension of disbelief got worse when you find out, and the next time you see it, the next movie, I think the next movie in the franchise is Iron Man 3, is that nobody... Nobody called the World Security Council to account for shooting a nuke at America. It was not Shield's nuke. I mean, it was Shield's nuke. It wasn't Hydra's. The World Security Council ordered it to be fired from the helicarrier, which means which the means Shield had more than one nuke. They had several because Fury did get one plane down that had a nuke on it, but the yeah. other one launched. So there's not only just one nuke on the fucking helicarrier. There are many. Theoretically, all the Quinjets have fucking nukes on them. So why wasn't the why wasn't Congress going? Why aren't you doing something about the why? How did you shoot? Where did you get nukes? Why did you? And who, how I, did you launch an an active nuke without the president of the United States? Right. How did that happen? Who is this? Who is this council that gave you the authority to shoot a nuke at New York? When, quite frankly, just a missile at Stark Tower would have done. 
No, but seriously, the codes for nuclear weapons are in football. That's what the nuclear football is. How the fuck did S.H.I.E.L.D. have an active nuclear weapon they could throw at New York to begin with? That was my biggest suspension of disbelief problem in the Avengers. I don't understand. I don't get it. I mean, even, in, even if you look at comic book politics, it still doesn't make any sense that a single organization like S.H.I.E.L.D. would have the ability to launch a nuclear weapon. Yeah, and that if they had a nuke, that they would be able to launch it without presidential authority. That they had the codes to activate a nuclear weapon on the fly. Bullshit. Yeah. They sh and especially I mean, an urban with an urban pop the urban population, um, the population density of New York, millions would have died. Millions. Millions. Probably. So please, I please, if you're writing Avengers fic. And you feel like that nuclear weapon actually has to land on New York. Do keep in mind that you're killing millions of people. Millions. Mil and that's millions. just on the initial. That's not just counting the, the fallout. The fallout, the contamination to the water, which would give slow death by cancer and radiation poisoning to potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions more well, um, from secondary Nick exposure. Nick Fury didn't blow up the nuke. He blew up the ship carrying it, and nukes are supposed. Nukes, in theory, are, are very stable. Um, in that, if he was actually carrying a nuclear missile on that ship, that nuclear missile is in the ocean and needs to be retrieved. The nuclear missile itself didn't blow. He sent down the ship, and it went down into the water. So they need to go down there, and hopefully, someone retrieved that nuclear weapon before we'll somebody assume, else did. We'll just assume they did. Um. I mean, the the considering the weapon in New York would have been catastrophic. It would have been, um, and you know, honestly, d depending on the size, it could have made most of the state of New York unlivable. So, and so you're talking about uh, uh, not. Can, I mean, uh, the loss of life is difficult to comprehend. The property damage difficult to comprehend. But also, you're talking about the displacement of people. Um, how many people would die just because they have no place to live? No place to go back but, uh, to. A nuclear weapon of that size would take out a hell of a lot more than just Manhattan. Oh, yeah. So if you're going to write Avengers fic, fic twice about letting that nuclear weapon land. There are sites you can go to um, that will let you put in like the yield of a weapon. And it will show you the primary blast radius, the secondary blast radius, da, 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 da. You drop that in. You take the, like the tiniest nuke we ever made and it would wipe out Manhattan and that you cannot for a second but go with the premise that an agency like S.H.I.E.L.D. would have a teeny tiny nuclear weapon and, and of course also because of the fact that New York is so close to an ocean the damage done on an ecological level for the planet would have been astronomical yeah, and they're never called to account for that. Now, so it's not a suspension of disbelief point, really. It's a little bit like, wow, that's a little bit of an overreaction um, in in the Avengers. But later right, on, because they had deployed military personnel at that point. Right, the military wasn't even on the ground. They hadn't tried to do anything. Their first, that was suspicious, right? So you're thinking, my thought was, wow, they're going to really have to figure that out. They're going to call them to account. They're going to be an investigation into who shot that nuke. Who is this World Security Council? Why would they do that? But no. And instead, it was like, I also had a, I also kind of like 
was taken aback by the um, sort of that last scene where they're doing the news coverage of stuff and people talking about this was the Avengers war and where are they now and look what they did and they have to account for their actions. That made no sense to me at all. It was stupid. I mean, they've got, they've got these Let's giant an invasion. space slugs are coming into Manhattan and you're blaming the people who stopped the giant space slugs. Um, that doesn't make any sense. P people are illogical, and th when they panic, we're not quite that illogical. It makes you question just how uh, Joss Whedon doesn't think much of people as a whole. Well, true. Just their asses, yeah. He's he's very fond of asses. <laughs> he casts. He casts for the butts. And he, I'm pretty sure he reshot part of Justice League to get better ass shots. That's. I don't doubt it at all. Anyways, the nuclear weapon remains my biggest point of contention in the Avengers. I'm like, what? No, that, that's not how that works. That's not how any of that works. I mean, even with comic book science, they've still got a fucking president. Yeah. I at the time I had suspension of disbelief issues around Steve's animosity for Tony, who acted a lot like Howard. Um, right. And considering that he basically had just seen Howard a few weeks prior, the level of animosity struck me as weird. Which is where this is where we start having fan theories about why would he be. I actually think it was shitty writing, but that's where the fan theories come in that Shield was manipulating him into having a negative impression of Tony. Although I still maintain that those two have more sexual chemistry than him and Gwyneth Paltrow. Because, okay, like, there was a moment when put on the suit was a threat. But also not. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Because like, he, he could have just as easily with that with that body language been saying, take off the suit. And we'd have been like, <laughs> I'm, I'm all in with that. Yeah, sure. Take it off. Or take off your pants. <laughs> I mean, because it was there, right? Yeah. Hey, actually, some of the, the to me the best acted scenes were the ones between the two of them. Right. Um, when the, the that scene where where Tony gets mad and says everything special about you came out of a bottle, beautifully acted, which was where put on the suit came from, I think. And then also when Steve started talking about soldiers after the they saved the helicarrier, and Tony got really mad and said we are not soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, the way they gelled in those scenes was like it was perfect. So I so love their, their chemistry is. Yeah, I think I, I think I want you to make me. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm gonna watch you make like, me. Like, what? Uh, okay, <laughs> I didn't, I never knew that Robert Downey Jr. was wearing lifts because I'm pretty sure he's a good three or four inches shorter than Chris Evans. Yeah, yeah, he is. Um. I told you about, um, you remember that there was that fan art that looked like real, like real thing with Tony tied to a cross and Loki coming up behind him kind of thing. And um, my mom thought it was, um, yeah, he, I think RDJ is five foot nine, but my mom saw that online on Facebook one day and she thought it was. Um, yeah, he's like, five foot nine. Yeah. My mom thought it was a publicity photo for Age of Ultron. And she sends it to me and she says, they're really going a different direction with um, the next movie. And I responded, <laughs> responded back to her that it was fan art, right? It was not 
That was not well, what was I going to say something about this shortness thing. RDJ is actually not very short. He's average. He's of ha- average height for a man. Yeah, he is. 5'9 is average in America for a man. So he's average. No, I'm pretty sure he's 5'9. I'm getting 5'9. Five 5'9, nine. Five nine, yeah. And 6' for Chris Evans. And 5'8 yeah. for Tom Holland. And that makes sense if you look at the, yeah, I mean, and Gwyneth Paltrow is 5'9". Yeah. And so anyway, so mom, my mom sends me this thing and I say, that's not a promo photo for Age of Ultron, mom. That is that is fan art for people who, and she goes, why would somebody do that as fan art? I said, well, people really like the idea of Tony and Loki getting together. And she was like, you mean romantically? I was like, yes, romantically. She goes, the only person you had any chemistry with was Captain America. And I was just like, oh yeah, my mom is shipping Steve Tony. <laughs> She just she was so mystified by Tony Loki, but it's because but the first thing out of her mouth his only good only good chemistry was with Steve and Tony. I was like, ah, we got a Steve Tony shipper in the house. <laughs> well, you know she's not wrong. They do have great chemistry. Um, yeah, she's for, not wrong. Um, RDJ and Chris Evans have a really awesome chemistry. Um, it but uh, no, I mean like he's not six two, but he's also not very short. I mean. Uh, very short for the for an adult male would be my height, five four, five two, five three. That would be very short, but it also wouldn't be considered little, as far as a little person goes. Um, but I think the little person is like four seven and down. Um, I, thought four, I thought it was four nine now. Is it? But it might be four, four seven. They change. They change like the averages and what's considered petite and all that stuff shifts as people get taller. So, but, but five nine like is average. It's not tall for a man. It's not short. Yeah. So I'm taller than an average man, which has, you know. And I am five four without shoes. So I'm actually, I think, I think the average woman is supposed to be like five six. I think so. I think five six and five nine are the averages. Yeah. That sounds about right from the last time I looked. I just think it's a, it's, it's, Weird to say somebody who's five nine is very short because they're not. Yeah, I feel like we missed an, an opportunity in this podcast. To what? <laughs> Which was that we talked about the suspension of disbelief issues in these movies, but not how you could get around them. What they could oh, have well. done. What they could have done differently because, um, so we t- I think we get a lot of good examples of what suspension of disbelief is. So apparently, but- four ten is the new metric for. Being considered a little person. Okay. So my great grandfather um, barely made it under the scale when he was alive um, to be considered a little person. And he was four seven. Um, and at the time, I think it was like four six or four seven. So he was barely considered to be um, a little person at the time. But now he would more than qualify. And so would my grandmother, actually. My grandmother was 4'9". Yeah. No, it not nutrition in my case. Um, my grand, my, my great-grandfather was genetically um, a little person. He. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. I did know that you were 4'10", but I didn't make the connection. I'm 5'4". No, I'm talking to... Look at the chat room. I don't want to... I'm not going to out some oh, fight, but... oh, desert. <laughs> <laughs> really, I, you 
410. I knew I was I knew I was a foot taller than she was, but I hadn't because we talked about that one day that I'm a full foot taller than she is. We'd be like Mutt and Jeff if we ever hung out together. But yeah, I mean, there are some genetic factors that can um can impact whether or not somebody's considered a little person or not. Uh, and, and the height is just one of the ways that um, that determine whether or not your um, genetic circumstances qualify you to be a little person. Yeah. Well, there are different kinds of little people. There are dwarves. Um, there's another... Uh, my grandfather had the other one. He wasn't a dwarf. He was, um, he was like um, the uh, the little person who plays Flitwick. He was. He had normal sized fingers and hands. I mean, his 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 proportions were were even. He was just small. Where oh. dwarves have short uh, digits. And um, they tend to have longer legs than they do in a, in a short torso. Um, but my grandfather, all of his proportions were were normal for his size. He didn't have any kind of... Um, um, and, and his daughter was the same way. Yeah, my great-grandmother so, great was four foot nine and she was the same. She was just very tiny. So, very tiny. So we might need to do another one on suspension of disbelief. Because we talked about lampshading and hand waving ahead of this right to kind of those are techniques for helping with it but that's not the only lampshade yeah, warwick help. davis thank you lady holder yeah um lampshade doesn't help with um not every situation can be lampshaded so if you just look at the examples we gave for them for the mcu i would say most of those you can't really lampshade some of them you could but most of them are just bad writing so when it comes to craft, how do you write better? To and apparently, Warwick Davis has a condition. Do you want to take a stab at that? Um, I wasn't in the chat room, but let me go back. Uh, Warwick Davis. Right? I mean, I can say dysplasia and congenital, but that first one, I'm like, I don't... It looks like spondylophysial, because it that first word, which is related to the spine, is a lot like ankylosing spondylitis in terms of spelling. Spondyloepiphyseal, yeah, I could I could buy that. Spondyloepiphyseal, dysplasia congenital (SED), which causes dwarfism. Those big words you look at the first time and you go, what? Um, but he does have um, his his fingers and hands are um, not uh, disproportional to the rest of him. And my grandfather was the same way. But my grandfather didn't did never had a physical. I mean, I've never had a an actual diagnosis because he refused to go to the doctor. He lived to be one hundred and ten, probably. He actually might have been a little bit older, but we never could figure out when he was born. But, um, yeah, that's why, you know, um, I've encountered people, um, in fandom who use the word, who use the M word like it's not a slur. 
and it drives me nuts. It's pejorative, so don't use it. Um, and just because you didn't know it was a slur doesn't make it any less a slur. <laughs> yeah. Now you know. So don't so do don't it. Don't use the M word. And there was a time that people tried to make a distinction between dwarfism and um, what was not one of the dwarfism conditions, just a, a small person by using the M word. Uh, so there was, I was, you know, I'll grant you that there was a time when it was more accepted, but it has been pejorative for a long time. Um, so if anybody has any follow-up questions about this, uh, drop them in the ask a question for the podcast. If you listen to the podcast and you're kind of like, hmm, I have some questions about how to deal with suspension of disbelief, how to kind of maybe ensure it for an audience that is, again, you're always trying to ensure for the audience that is willing. Don't worry and about we'll the doubters. An another podcast about that. Yeah. So work because on that. I think identifying problems is um, a really important skill because if you can't see the problems, you can't fix the problems. So giving a whole bunch of examples is really good. And then so. when you, um, one of the one of the key things is sometimes when you're too close to something, it's really hard to both see the problems and identify a solution. The solution can seem bigger than it actually needs to be. And that is where it helps to have your writer circle that you can take a step back with and get some help. So go join so, the Just Write server. There's bunches of us. But we'll do another uh, podcast and talk about how to fix um, issues. Um, a couple of housekeeping things. Rough trade signups are closed. Um, we didn't get as many as, I thought, as, as we normally do. So that's kind of a surprise. I'm not sure if it's just because of Fit Coma and um, Quantum Bang. Or if the, the premise just wasn't interesting to people. Um, but there's going to be 27 participants. 28? 20-ish. See? <laughs> I've already forgotten. 27? Like, hold on, say 27. Um, I think I, yeah, I think that's what I told you earlier, right? Yeah, 27. So that's two projects each. And um, that will, uh, and we start those July 1st. Your project files are due on the 25th. Don't make me hunt you down. And there's a whole, but there's a lot of variety too, which has been really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to a lot of these. I would say for the most part, we don't have a, a movie more than twice. Right. Some, most, most movies, it's only once. But I think we've got a couple of Endgame. Riddick. A couple a of couple Riddick. Endgame. And a couple of Battle of the Five Armies. Right. But for the most part, it's like there's a, there's a whole lot of variety, which is really cool. Because there's 54 projects. So, so that's awesome. And um, one other thing, we now have another channel on Crossroads called Fic Ninja Central where you can go and do like, uh, help me find the fic. And that, you know, we named it after Willow, Fic Ninja. Because we, we figured it might be her favorite place. Yes. Hard work and stare at people. Like the ninja she is. Um, <clears throat> but you're all welcome to use Willow's channel. <laughs> Unless she says otherwise. <laughs> and to ask for help or to give help. Uh, just pop over there. And just do please try to be specific. 
Um, like, yeah, I mean, our goal for July is going to be at least 500K, which is the minimum 10K. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you're welcome, fandom. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but when you go do the Fic Ninja channel, if you're not specific, like if you just say looking for a John Rodney fic where they get caught up, captured off world, that's not specific enough. Oh, you got to be. It, it, and if it's if it's so vague, people have to ask you a bazillion qual qualifying questions. We're just going to delete it. And you'll have to so, ask again. Don't be vague. Give as much information as you can remember. And because um, we've all seen those requests on Fic Finder groups, right? Looking for a Tony leaves the team story. And what they're really asking is, you're right. They're, um, um, they're asking for um, you to give them a whole list of fix for them to read, um, which isn't what that channel is for. Yeah. So, if you want Rex, go over to go over to Minion headquarters. But um, as on, on is Yui. currently looking for an SGA fix, that she has some details for. Um, she's posted it in several places, and nobody's come up with a um, with a. Uh, thing so check it out and maybe you can help her find her fic she would be delighted I'm sure we'd be delighted too yeah because I remember reading it and I'd like to read it again anyways <clears throat> um, we're going to end the podcast here I hope you guys had a great weekend and we, we shall catch you later say goodnight Jilly night everyone <laughs>